All right, in Matthew 13, Jesus starts by giving the parable of the four soils. And the parable of the four soils is, is a really good parable because it describes uh, the condition of the human heart and it describes exactly what fruit looks like in, in the person who comes to Christ and the person who, who follows Christ. And so he gives the, the parable first, starting in verses 3 and ending in verse 9. And then uh, he skips over a little bit, and then he picks up the explanation down in verse 18. And so a lot of times what we do when we read through this passage is we read the, the parable, and we want to make sure we, we get all the soils right, and we get all the pieces of the parable right, and then we jump down to the explanation a few verses later. But in between, something really important happens. I want to just focus our attention there. In verse 10, the disciples come to Jesus, and they say to him, why do you speak to them in parables? Them is this crowd that has gathered to hear Jesus teach. He's near the Sea of Galilee. A crowd has gathered, as has happened many, many times before. And they've gathered, and Jesus is speaking in parables. And the disciples want to know why. Jesus says to them in verse 11, To you, his disciples, it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them... It has not been granted. So what we're going to see here is we're going to see two things at play. We're going to see God's mercy, <coughs> and we're going to see God's judgment, both on display at the same time. So to one group of people, it is granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. To the other group, that has not been granted. That knowledge has not been granted. Verse 12, For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. Who does not have even what he has shall be taken away from him. Jesus is speaking about an understanding here, an understanding of the knowledge of the kingdom of heaven. And he goes on and describes what we see in, in verse 13 and following. He speaks in very strong judgment language. He says, Therefore, I speak to them, the crowds, in parables, because while seeing, they do not see, and while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. So they can't see. They can't hear, and they can't understand. And he goes further in verse 14. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears, they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return, and I would heal them. And he says in verse 16, But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. Truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it. That's to see the Messiah, and to see and understand the kingdom of heaven, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So it's very clear here, starting at the beginning of, of Jesus' explanation in verse 11, that there is an understanding that is granted, that God gives that understanding. That's an understanding that man can't have on his own. He can't acquire it. He can't study and get it on his own. It's been granted to him to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. And then there's another set of people who don't receive that same, that same understanding. So for the believer, the one who's in Christ, the man who's in Christ, the reason why he sits down with his Bible in the morning is because God has already given him an understanding of what is there. When we sit down and we read the word and we ask God to give us his spirit to help us understand what we're reading, whether we're in the New Testament or the Old Testament, somewhere in our reading plan, we meet with the Lord because he has given us the capacity, he's given the believer the capacity to understand his word. And so we have this opportunity to grow in our understanding of who he is, grow in our understanding of ourselves, grow in our understanding of the church, of those that serve in the church. And we, we get that by reading God's word and having his spirit at work in us as we're taking in his word. And that is affirmed as we speak back to the Lord in prayer, as, he, as we are speaking to him about what we just read and applying it to our heart and seeking wisdom to apply this to our heart in the right way. So this is, this is a really good parable. It's a great parable because we understand who the true children of God are. They're the ones where the seed falls on the good soil and there is, there is a harvest that rises up 30, 60, and 100 fold. Um, but
but in between is the explanation. So we want to make sure that we understand that as a believer, if you're a believer in Christ, you have an understanding of the knowledge of the kingdom of heaven. And when you sit down with, with the word, you can read something that at an earlier point in your life was just foreign to you. It was just Greek to you. I grew up in a family where my, my parents gave me a Bible. It was a Bible in my own heart language. It was in English. It was written at my reading level. And I read that Bible for years and years and years and years before I was a believer. And I, I have to tell you, I knew the information in the stories and the things that I read, but I could not understand what I was reading. And when I began to read the Bible as a Christian, that was the first thing I noticed that was different about my life, was I would read the Bible and I would read it with understanding. And uh, that is such a blessing. I'm reading the same stories, I'm reading the same passages that I read six months earlier, and they have all this meaning that they didn't have before. They were just words in a line for me. So for the believer, we have the opportunity to, to engage with God's word because he's given us the understanding. So I hope that's helpful to you. Uh, and I hope that's encouraging to you for uh, motivation to you of why we need to meet together with the Lord because he has already given us the understanding of the kingdom of heaven. And as we read and engage with his word, we, we actually do grow in our understanding of him. So I hope that's an encouragement to you. All right, Scott is going to be teaching us starting at 8 o'clock. He's going to be teaching from Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Old Testament view on God's design for the family. By way of introduction there, um, at the top of your page, you see um, a summary of the book of Deuteronomy. Um, so let's just think again, that we're just going to spend some time giving you uh, some what the setting is uh, for our passage here. And so this is a good summary statement. God appears in the book of Deuteronomy in a strong covenantal setting. He is the great king. He's the Lord of the covenant. The Mosaic covenant portrays God as the great king who entered into a treaty or a covenant with Israel so that he became their God and they his people. This is, this is what formalized Yahweh's relationship with Israel. Um, he went way back before Israel even existed, and he went to one man in Ur of the Chaldeans, and he said to Abraham, come out and come to this land. I'll give it to your, your descendants after you, and your family will be a great nation, and they will bless all the nations. And the nations will be blessed in them. So he initiated it long ago, but this Deuteronomy, this second giving of the law on the plains of Moab, before they go into the, the new promised land, really formalized his relationship with them um, and his promises to them. Here's an outline for the book you can see there. Uh, in fact, if you'll go back to chapter 1 of Deuteronomy, I want you just to see verse 5. The first five verses are about who this covenant mediator is. It's about Moses. And in verse 5 it says, Across the Jordan, in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to expound this law. So this is... Uh, Deuteronomy means the second giving of the law. And they are on the plains of Moab. They've crossed the Jordan. They are on the cusp of heading into the promised land. It is at the end of the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. That's our setting in a bigger picture. From chapter 1, verse 6 to chapter 4, verse 49 is a little bit of the covenant history. It's, it's how did Israel get to where they are in the wilderness? How did they get to the plains of Moab? And then the biggest section within Deuteronomy, chapter 5 through really chapter 26, is just about covenant life. What does covenant life look like under Yahweh? Uh, that's where the Ten Commandments are reiterated in chapter 5, and then a whole lot of other uh, instruction is given. In chapter 27 to chapter 30, you get covenant sanctions. That's where the covenant is ratified, where blessings and curses that go along with the covenant are found in a covenant oath. And then it ends in chapter 31 to chapter 34 with covenant continuity. In other words, what's going to happen without Moses as they go into the promised land? Will the covenant continue? And it will. And that's kind of an outline of the book. Obviously, our chapter that we're in fits right in the middle there at uh, that primary <coughs> section on covenant life. And so let's take a look at verse 4 of chapter 6. And... Uh, Really, what is being said here, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, is really just Yahweh being the very center of Israel's life. This verse introduces us to Yahweh, the God of Israel, and that in particular, he is, 
He is their very life. He is the center of everything for them. The closer that Israel draws to Yahweh, the warmer their affections will be for him. Their love for him will will um, abound. Their obedience to him will be made secure. The more lively their service of Yahweh will be. Israel has to stay close to this God. That is what is being said here. This is a call in Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 to not drift from him. To not put any distance between themselves, and, but instead to intensify their intimacy with him. It's not just a call to not drift, but it's a call to intensify their intimacy with Yahweh. Um, Verse 4 of Deuteronomy 6 is called the Shema, uh, from the Hebrew word for hear, which is at the beginning of the verse. Hear, O Israel. Uh, It's an imperative for Israel, and it includes in this verb, it's not just letting sound waves come through the air and reverberate in your eardrum, and then you heard the noise and you deciphered what the noise was. Oh, that's language. You want me to listen. It's much, 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 much more than that to hear in um, Hebrew means uh, you have the intent to live under what you hear, uh, it, that you will order all the rest of your life under and around Yahweh. In fact, look back at verse 3. O Israel, you should listen and what? Be careful to do it. It's to hear with the intent to do. I've got a quote here for you from Merrill. He says, to hear in Hebrew is tantamount to obey, especially in a covenant context like this. That is, to hear God without putting into effect the command is to not hear him at all. That's what's going on in the Hebrew mind when you say the word hear. Um, And if we even go with a, a larger context beyond even Deuteronomy, we were to think, okay, what happened prior to all of this, this hearing God with the intent to obey him is in light of all that Yahweh has done for them prior. You have to uh, review in your mind, okay, what has happened already? First, um, this hearing with the intent to obey is in light of all these other things that he has done for them because at one point they were um, to be a people under the Abrahamic covenant. That was what was stated at the very beginning and meaning Abraham believed and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Uh, So in other words, from the very beginning, what God, as he's going to start to go after all of the nations, he's going to grab one man and he's going to say, it's by grace, through faith, alone. And that's what he did with Abraham. By grace, through faith, alone is not a New Testament doctrine, (coughs) merely. It is from the very beginning, from chapter 12 of Genesis on, and even before that. Um, But it's formalized there with this man. Um, Abraham believed and it was reckoned to him as righteousness that precedes this hear and obey me because Israel as the seed of Abraham is to be a people who believed and it was reckoned to them as righteousness did the nation do that as a whole? no because it's one by one Uh, it's too bad but You have to remember, this is what is before this. This is what is foundational underneath this, hear and obey me. Uh, It's by grace through faith alone. In other words, this hear to obey me is not works salvation that God is putting before Israel. Do you understand that? You have to remember this prior to that. Prior to this, you have to remember that he went into Egypt and he redeemed this people out of Egypt. That was by grace. Did they deserve that? They didn't deserve that, as you'll see. Um, they went into the wilderness and he gave them his covenant in the wilderness. All of this uh, precedes what is going on here with this here to uh, with the intent of obey. There's a lot of grace from Yahweh to them prior to this moment of saying, hear me with the intent to obey. Um, so that's just important to remind yourself. And by the way, this this principle of hearing with the intent to obey um, this this is a theme you will find all the way through your Bible. Uh, this is Israel's here with the intent to obey. Can you think of anything in the New Testament for us that says the same thing? How, how about James chapter 1? James chapter 1, verses 23 to 25. Turn there with me just to see it with your own eyes. For if anyone... 
James 1, 23 to 25. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and what? Not a doer. He is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he's immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. So God's intent always is that we hear him, hear his words with the intent to obey. Um, Back in Deuteronomy 6, this statement, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh is one, is probably the most potent and succinct summary of Yahweh up to this point in the Pentateuch. It's as if uh, Moses is thinking, how could I summarize Yahweh's relationship with us and our relationship with him at this point? And he just said it simply, Yahweh is our God. And Yahweh is one. Take Yahweh out of the midst of us and we lose all of our distinctiveness. Write down Exodus 33, verse 16. Let me read it to you. This is when, this is after the golden calf. Exodus 33, verse 16. This is after the golden calf. Uh, God has said to Moses, look, I'm not going with you because if I go with you, I'll just kill you all. Um, so you just go, I'll send an angel in front of you, and you, uh, you just go. And Moses pleads with Yahweh and says, please, you have to go with us. Yahweh uh, uh, tells him that he will go. But listen to what he says in thirty-three sixteen. This is what Moses said. For how then can it be known that I have found favor in your sight, Yahweh, I and your people? Is it not by your going with us so that we, I and your people, may be distinguished from all the other people who are upon the face of the earth. What made Israel different than the rest of the nations? Yahweh. Him. He is our God, they would say. And he is one. Not one of many, but he is one. He is one and only one. Take Yahweh out of their midst, they lose all their distinction. They become a lifeless nation like the rest. Take Yahweh out of their midst once they are in the promised land, surrounded by the false gods of all the other nations, and they instantly become just like all of the other nations. They are no different. But as long as they stay near Yahweh in the wilderness or in the promised land, there's hope for them. I have another quote for you. What does this last uh, part of chapter uh, verse 4 mean? Yahweh is our God, Yahweh is one. Um, all the grammatical possibilities point in the same direction. They point to the uniqueness of Yahweh, the supremacy of Yahweh, God of Israel. The unity of God is stressed. God's distance from the invented deities of the nations is being stressed in this statement. Israel's strength lying not only in the worship of Yahweh, but in the exclusive worship of him that's what's being stressed <clears throat> yahweh is not a uh, um, he is not a schizophrenic god he, he can't be split into pieces he is unified and he belongs to them and they belong to him they are a people of his unique possession now why is that so important to say why is that so important to say that why would he want to make that point there's only one god and he is our God. Why would he have to make that statement? Um, we have to think about, again, the bigger and broader context of all of this. So what I'm going to have you do for a moment with me is I want you to think about, okay, what's been behind them at this point? So we'll think about what's been behind them, which is Egypt and their life there for the last 400 years. And then we're going to look in front of them. They're on the, the plains of Moab. They're about to go into the promised land. What's in front of them? And then we'll figure out why it would need to be said right here, surrounded by these two things. Now, to find out and get a little um, commentary on what it was like when they were in Egypt, one of the books we could go to, the primary book that you would think to go to, would be Exodus, right? Because that details what um, their life was like in Egypt and the, the plagues that came upon the, the different idols and the false gods of Egypt. But there's actually another chapter in your Bible that gives some special information about what God found when he went into Egypt to redeem them. And it's Ezekiel 20. 
And I want you to go there. And this is why if you never read Ezekiel, if you don't read through the Bible, you're going to miss stuff like this. You don't want to miss this kind of stuff to put your Bible together. So Ezekiel 20 is where we're going. Ezekiel 20, verse 5. This is what Yahweh found when he went into Egypt. He didn't tell us everything of what he found when he, in, in the book of Exodus. He tells us more here. Look at Ezekiel 20, verse 5. And say to them, Thus says the Lord God, On the day when I chose Israel and swore to the descendants of the house of Jacob and made myself known to them in the land of Egypt, when I swore to them, saying, I am the Lord your God, on that day I swore to them to bring them out from the land of Egypt into a land that, had, that I had selected for them, flowing with milk and honey, which is the glory of all lands. I said to them, cast away each of you the detestable things of his eyes and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am Yahweh your God. What was Israel doing for 400 years in Egypt? Idolatry. Idolatry. It gets, he, he expounds on this. But they rebelled against me, and they were not willing to listen to me, and they did not cast away the detestable things of their eyes, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. And then I resolved to pour out my wrath on them to accomplish my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. Did you know? That when he told Moses to go back and get them, and he said these kinds of words to them, you got to get rid of these idols, and they said, no thanks. Did you know that God in Egypt was going to just finish it there? That's what he says. Keep reading. But I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they lived, in whose sight I made myself known to them by bringing them out of the land of Egypt. So I took them out of the land of Egypt, and I brought them into the wilderness. Did things get any better? I gave them my statutes and informed them of my ordinances by which if a man lives or observes them, he will live. Also, I gave them my Sabbath to be a sign between me and them that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. But the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes, and they rejected my ordinances by which if a man observes them, he will live. And my Sabbath... They greatly profaned. Then I resolved to pour out my wrath on them in the wilderness to annihilate them. So he almost crushed them in the wilderness. But I acted, verse 14, for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations before whose sight I had brought them out. Also I swore to them in the wilderness that I would not bring them into the land which I had given them, flowing with milk and honey, which is the glory of all the lands, because they rejected my ordinances and as for my statutes, they did not walk in them. They even profaned my Sabbaths, for their heart continually in the wilderness did what? It went after their idols. Yet my eyes spared them rather than destroying them. And I did not cause their annihilation in the wilderness. Okay, go back to Deuteronomy 6. That's behind them, bringing you up to the present. In Egypt, for 400 years, they were idolatrous. They get into the wilderness, they are still idolatrous. God proves himself to be gracious and patient towards them all the time. Now look at Deuteronomy 7, verse 1. When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it. So now we're looking in front of them. What's in front of them? This promised land. And he clears away many nations before you. The Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. Seven nations greater and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them before you and you defeat them, you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your sons away from following me to do what? To serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you there too. But thus you shall do to them. Tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, and hew down their asherim. And burn their graven images with fire. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all of the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So you tell me, what's behind them? Idolatry. Where have they been currently in the wilderness still impacted by? 
Idolatry. Where are they going? Idolatry. Why does he need to say this? Here, with the intent to obey Israel, Yahweh is one. He's our God. There is no other God. He's not one of many. He is the one and only God, and he is ours. We are a unique people to him. Of course he has to say this. Of course he has to say this. If Israel will stay near, if idolatry inclined Israel, and aren't you so glad that you and I aren't like them? I mean, that we have nothing in common with them. Um, If idolatry inclined Israel will just stay near to Yahweh, there's hope for them. She has fullness of life with him in the covenant. But they have to stay near to him. And then this God who says this to them, what is the first thing on his mind toward them? Verse 5. Love me. Love me. That does not mean emote about me. Certainly love involves the emotions, but it is much, 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 much broader and bigger than feelings. Empty yourself out for me. Like Jesus emptied himself out in love for us. Love from his people is what is on his mind first, and it is to be love from the heart. Which now takes us to number one. The discipline of the heart for the Old Testament believer. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. This is to be a love that consumes the whole of man. The, the whole heart. And you know this from what you've been talking about all year so far. Your heart is not a piece of you. It is you inwardly before God. It's who you are before God. And this is totally unique. Uh, There is no evidence of the gods of Egypt or the gods of the Amorites or the Canaanites or the Girgashites or the Perizzites or the Hivites or the Jebusites or any or the Philistines or any of their gods that, that any of their gods ever communicated to their devotees this demand to be loved. In fact, no ruler today would think to do this. Matthew Henry in his quote says, did ever any prince make a law that his subjects should love him? Yet such is the condescension of the divine grace that this has made the first and great commandment of God's law that we love him and that we perform all other parts of our duty to him from a principle of love. Now, what is meant here by loving him with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your strength, all of your might. What is God's intent here? His intent, um, as you know, is not to send Israel on a splicing analysis of themselves. Meaning, um, they were not to run over here and look for the heart and then gather up all that the heart is and love God with that and then run over there and find the soul and gather up all of the soul and love God with that peace and then run over here to where their strength or their might was and to gather up all their strength and then to love him with all of that. Um, he is not trying to get Israel to divide man up. He's doing just the opposite. He's trying to gather up what man is all in one using different terms. You are heart. Israel, you are soul, you are strength. Whatever, however you think of yourself in all these different dimensions, all of it must be given over in love to me, all of you loving me. He's not trying to divide man up. He's actually doing just the opposite. Gather all that man is into one and love. Because if you get the heart of man, if you get who he is inwardly before God, you get him. And if you get the soul of the man, you get his whole life. And if you get his strength, you get him. In regards to strength, there's another quote there for you. What is meant here by strength? Strength is not so much a person's physical power as his intensity. God wants earnestness in a person's love. He desires not merely that we possess 
a faith or possess love, but that our faith or our love should possess us. So here's a question for you as you as we just kind of make our way through this. When you think of the Old Covenant, and when you think of Mosaic Law, is the first thing that comes to your mind love for God? Or do you just think, oh, there's a lot of rules. Man, there's a lot of rules. Um, you know what? The first thing on God's mind in the Old Covenant is what? Love. Love for, from his people for him. And so Yahweh's people were not guilty before him first and foremost because they broke a lot of dietary laws uh, or social laws or sacrificial laws or even that they broke the Ten Commandments. They did all of that indeed. But they were guilty before Yahweh first and foremost because of what? They did not love him with an all-consuming love. And because they did not love Yahweh, they were unconcerned with or they were slow to obey all of those other laws, even the Ten Commandments. So in God's mind, love has always been the issue. Um, the cure for disobedience is first more love for God. And again, not more emoting. If, if you are having trouble obeying the Lord trying to get yourself to emote about it first will not help. Because you will then be having propping up a new idol, which is your feelings. And you won't do anything until you feel. Very dangerous way to live. You don't want anybody in your family who loves you to base their love for you on how they feel about you at the moment, do you? I don't. And certainly this is not to be the case in our relationship with the Lord. Um, an illustration perhaps to give you uh, would, that would be a, the closest covenant idea in our minds and our culture because we're very much not a covenant kind of people thinking. Obviously, we're under the new covenant, but even then, how much do you think about new covenant? How many times have you said that to yourself in the last week? Probably not very often, but there is a covenant that is more in front of our minds in our day that w- might help you think about this, and it's, it's the marriage covenant, right? When a, when a man and a woman stand up and they get married, the marriage covenant is full of vows, right? Two parties pledging to keep these vows, to obey these vows made to one another. Will you? I will. Will you? I will. Will you? I'll do anything you say, right? You can sit there and you can stand up in the midst of that ceremony and you could just say, you know, this sounds like a bunch of do's and don'ts to me, right? You can say that. This is a very law-like ceremony we're going through. But why on a wedding day does no bride ever object to these laws or these vows? Why? Because what is foundational underneath it and swarming the whole thing is just love. I love this man. And the man's thinking the same thing. I love this woman. I'll do anything. So this is not a crazy idea. It's not a foreign idea. We understand this. In fact, go to John chapter 14. I want you to get this. Okay, so a good Jew would every day say to Shema, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. They would say that it would be just, you know, from the, from the earliest days of speaking, the, learning how to talk, this would be what would be coming out of a, a, a Jew's mouth. Now I want you to understand that some ragged looking rabbi comes on the scene with some scoundrel guys following him around. And they're in, they're, of all places, they're in Galilee. And then you find out that this guy, this rabbi is from Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? They said, right? And then he says this in John chapter 14, verse 21. He, a rabbi from Nazareth in Galilee said this. He who has my commandments. Wait a minute. You're just a, you're a rabbi from Nazareth in Galilee. What do you, what do you mean you have commandments? He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who what? Loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. 
those would have been absolutely scandalous words to say. His disciples could hardly have missed the point, this is in that quote there for you, uh, of this statement, in which Jesus insisted on the same devotion that Israel had been commanded to give Yahweh. Um, You can understand why they pick up rocks and want to throw them at the sky. Um, But at least it's clear what they understood what he was claiming to be. Um, Let's go back to, uh, no, not not yet. Don't go back yet. Um, Write down a couple of other passages. Matthew 22, verses 36 to 40. This is where Jesus summarizes the great commandment and another one like it, right? Matthew 22, verses 36 to 40. You could write down 1 Corinthians 16, verse 22. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 22. Paul there says, If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. Love is the issue. Ephesians 6, 24. Ephesians 6, 24. Paul says, Those who love our Lord Jesus Christ do so with an incorruptible love. And then let's turn, you're already in John 14, turn to a John 21. John 21, verses 15 to 17. I want you to be reminded of this. This is after Jesus has been raised from the dead. Peter has made his big, 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 big promises to Jesus on the night that he was betrayed and crucified, or, or prior to the day he was crucified. His big promises, you know, that Peter made were, I will never forsake you. I would never deny you. And he even promised, I am ready to die with you, for you. Right? Remember those big promises uh, followed by big failures? So Peter decides, you know what? I I think I'm just going to go back to being what I used to be without Christ. I'm just going to go fishing. And so Peter is so undone by what he has done in rejecting and denying Christ that he feels so unworthy. He goes back and um, starts to fish. They're out all night. They catch nothing. You know the story. Uh, They look on the shore. There's a guy standing. They really can't make out who it is. And the guy on the shore says, hey, take the net and throw it on the other side of the boat. And the professional fishermen who have done this all their lives are thinking, you've got to be kidding me. That's like saying, you've been casting on the wrong side of the boat. Just turn around and do this. Cast on the other side. You and I both know that Uh, The only way that that's going to work is if the Lord somehow who made the fish is collecting all the fish under the water on this side, just waiting for the net to come. That's the only way that happens and works, which is exactly what happened. Peter jumps in the water, swims to the shore, is with Jesus, and Jesus, resurrected Jesus, restores Peter this way. Verse 15, so when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you, what? Love me. Do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, then tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep then. Verse 17, he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him for the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Um, so how is Jesus directing his disciple to think about just the foundations from Peter's side of the relationship? What's foundational, Peter? What's foundational? Love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Love is. Love is not, um, and by foundational, I mean it from our side in response. What's foundational for us is God's love for us first in Jesus Christ at the cross to atone for our sins and this sacrificial death but from our side then what's foundational as we respond to that because of god's grace in our lives it's our love for him and peter needed to be brought back to that and this is the way that he restored him into fellowship is by pointing to him the importance and the foundational piece of love in the life right let's go back now to deuteronomy 6 for just a moment before we leave it again because we got to be all over our bibles to put this together Deuteronomy 6, Yahweh's people Israel, whose life is bound up in him, they discover next that he has provided them a means by which 
their love for him can be kept up, how their love for him can be maintained, how it can be promoted, how their love for him can be nurtured, how their love for him will not wither or decay. What is it? Verse 6, these words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart, on your heart. These words have to advance and find their resting and dwelling place on the heart of the Israelite. So Yahweh's intent way back then for Israel and even still for us in Christ has always been this, that love for God must move towards God's word in order to bring it into the heart of the believer. There are, there are a lot of things that have changed from your Old Testament into your New Testament, and there are some things that have never changed, and it's this one. That love for God must move into the heart and with the Word of God at the heart level to nurture that love, to maintain that love, to work from that love into obedience. Okay, now we're going to leave there again. So you, you got that, right? These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. That was to Israel. I want you to go to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. Let's watch the Savior illustrate and teach the crowds. Luke chapter 8 is the parable of the sower of seed. You know this parable well. The sower went out to sow and, you know, the seed went in all kinds of different soils, Right? Look at, look at what he says in chapter 8 of Luke, verse 12. Those beside the road are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from where? Their heart. So that, what? They will not believe and be saved. Can I ask you this? Does the devil know what God wants to have happen at the heart level with his word. I mean, he does, because he's stopping it from happening wherever he can to prevent salvation. Look at verse 15. But the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. They're obedient. And the big question that the crowd should have asked is like, how do I get that kind of heart? How do I change inwardly like that so that when the word comes, I receive it and I'm fruitful? Where does that come from? They didn't ask that question, but that's what they should have been thinking, right? Um, go to Luke 24. Resurrected Jesus is walking along on a road to Emmaus with two of his disciples. They can't recognize him, and they're all in distraught, and, and they are just despondent. And he says, oh, uh, Luke 24, verse 25. He said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. That's the word of God. You have a heart that is slow to embrace everything that has been written by the prophets. The word. Was it not necessary for Messiah to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all of the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. So he began to teach them. He then goes and sits with them. They break bread. He reveals himself to them. He vanishes. And what do they say? Verse 32. They said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was what? Speaking to us on the road while he was explaining the scriptures to us. Their hearts were on fire as he was explaining the truth of God's word. So again, just showing that uh, the word of God and the human heart, the believer's heart, um, the inner man is to be in a full contact sport with one another. Go to Hebrews chapter 4, one last one in the New Testament, and then we'll jump back into Deuteronomy for a little bit. Hebrews 4, verse 12, you know this one well. For the word of the Lord, uh, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. You need to have the word of God come close to your heart, your inner man, so that you can discern what's going on in you. Here's the quote from Matthew Henry. 
God's words must be laid up on our heart that our thoughts may be daily conversant with them and employed about them, and thereby the whole soul may be brought to abide and act under the influence and the impression of them. This immediately follows upon the law of loving God with all your heart. For those that do so will lay up his word in their hearts right here. Watch this. They'll lay up his word in their hearts, both as an evidence of that love and the effect of that love. And as a means to preserve and increase that love, he that loves God loves his Bible. Write down Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Guys, this is what Discipline 1 and Build is all about. Um, You need to be the kind of man who constantly brings your heart to the word of God so that God might graciously reveal himself to you in those words. Your love for God there with your Bible open gets fanned into a flame and it, gets, it turns you back again and again to those very same words so that your love for God may be guided into proper self-emptying expressions of obedience to Jesus Christ. And this is to go on all day long. It's not just about having a quiet time in the morning, closing your Bible and say, I did that, check that off, and now I can go do with my day whatever I want to do in my day because it's my day. It's not like that at all. Every Christian is called to this kind of living. This is not the super Christian that's being described. This is every single believer from the Old Testament to the New Testament. You must become a well-disciplined man in this area. Guys, you know this by now. This does not just automatically happen. Sometimes it's easier for you than at other times. But it still requires from you self-control that says, I'm not going to sleep more. I'm going to get up. I'm not going to look at the news right now. I'm going to open my Bible. I'm going to do this now. I'm going to go to bed earlier so that I can rehearse in my mind what I did read earlier today and have been meditating on. Those things don't just happen. You have to control yourself to do them. You have to discipline yourself to do them. Your wife can't do it for you as much as you might want her to. You have to discipline yourself. This is what it's all about. The men of Grace Bible Church need to be, first of all, known as men who love Jesus Christ, which means that we will be known as men who love the Bible. Because we love our Lord. These are inseparable. Number two, the discipline of the home. Now we go back to Deuteronomy 6. We'll stay there for a while. Pretend we're Israelites for just a little bit. We'll put ourselves in their sandals. Try to shake out the pebbles that get stuck in our sandals as we walk along. The discipline of the home for the Old Testament believer. Verses 7 and 9. Without any conjunction break or anything, just another command comes right out. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. In Israel, these words had to advance beyond just the the man, beyond the husband, beyond the father. They had to advance into his home, into his children. Verse 7, he had to teach them diligently to his children. There are two illustrations. This word for teaching them diligently, uh, the idea of the diligence here. uh, There's two illustrations that kind of help you understand what's going on. And both of them have to do with some kind of a, a tool and stone and a stone. Here's the first one. One one commentator says it's this. Frequently repeat these things to your children. Try all ways of instilling them into their minds and making them pierce into their hearts as in sharpening a knife. It is first turned on this side, then on that side on the sharpening stone. So he's taking the imagery that's with the, the idea of this diligence. It was with a, like a knife going back and forth on a stone in constant contact with it over and over. You don't just do it once and you're done and your knife is sharp. You have to go back and forth over and over. There's a diligence required there. The other thought is, 
in the second quote, the image is that of an engraver of a monument who takes a hammer and chisel in hand and with painstaking care etches a text into the face of a solid slab of granite. The sheer labor of such a task is daunting indeed, but once done, the message is there to stay. The idea of a chisel and a hammer on a on a, on a piece, of, a slab of, of granite or whether, uh, whatever, um, repeated action over and over and over and over. In both cases, whatever the idea is, the idea is that the tool is taken to the stone diligently and you are to instruct your children, Israel, in that kind of a fashion, diligently, over and over and over and over and over and over. It takes time. That was the idea for Israel. So Yahweh is the one and only center of their life. They are to love him supremely with all that they are. Their words are to be on their hearts. And then those precious words are to be diligently advanced by teaching into the household. Now, can you imagine if the nation as a whole would have been this? If Israel would have been this way? Uh, that would have been a, a pretty amazing sight to see. Notice else what he says in verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your sons, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. Again, uh, never the idea is this, that you just have a quiet time and then get up and just kind of get on with your life. Um, I can remember um, Tom saying to me at one point years ago, because we, we, we uh, in build, and this is when we had to kind of expand on this and, and recognize that we were maybe overemphasizing something to the diminishment of something else that was really important. And that was we kept, and you know this, uh, you see it in your homework a lot, um, that it, what happens when your Bible is open is what's really important, right? Um, just because you're a believer and your Bible is open doesn't mean that the right things are going on. And so we're trying to help you think about what should be going on when my Bible's open. And so we put all this emphasis on what's going on when your Bible's open, what's going on when your Bible's open. And then it sounds like to some guys, when your Bible's closed, you just go on into your day. And so Tom would be sitting with somebody and say, well, wait a minute, you know, hearing kind of what's going on at work or whatever, this challenge in marriage or whatever. And Tom would say, well, wait a minute, are you, are you shepherding your heart? How are you shepherding your heart with God's word in this? And, and, and the guy's answer is, well, I had my quiet time this morning. Oh. We need to talk about this with a little bit more clarity. That it's not just about what you do in your quiet time. Yes, please have a quiet time. Be in your Bible. But there has to be a way that when you walk by the way, that you have the word of God coursing through your mind. You, you don't graduate from your quiet time in the morning into freedom from it. Okay? And if you're like me, guys, that's probably the bigger challenge for you because you're, you're probably a go-getter kind of guy and you're just going to get after your day. And the idea of actually planning, okay, how am I going to, during the day, bring this back to mind? What am I going to do? When I'm in a conversation and uh, things are going haywire, how will I even know that I should stop in that moment and bring God's word to bear on my life, my heart? How do I do that? Yeah. Would it be fair to say throughout most of Israel's history that there was also a remnant that was faithful? Absolutely. Um, overall, uh, you will see that the, the nation was off the rails, but there was always a remnant. God always kept a remnant. Um, Moses was such. Joshua was such. Samuel was such. David. I mean, and, and all across the spectrum, right, from the lowest um, widow to the king, there was always sprinkled all throughout a, a faithful remnant who did this. Um, I, I don't think as you read your Old Testament, though, that you get any sense that Israel, for the most part, was in a, in a very good place. But you're absolutely right, David. There, there was always a remnant faithful to this. Yeah. So, when you sit and when you walk, 
Israel was upon any occasion inside their home, outside their home, to impress the word of Yahweh on their children. When you're walking in the way, that wasn't on your way to the bathroom in your house. It was on the way wherever you were going, in the countryside, in the city, wherever you were going. They were to talk about this in occasions of inactivity, when they were sitting. They were to talk about these things when they were in occasions of activity, when they were walking. When you lie down and when you rise up, that was a way of saying at the, at the beginning of your day and at the end of your day. The bookends of your day um, are to be marked by this kind of um, pursuit and teaching of the word into the household. Um, all of these were times to impress the word of God on the heart and the mind of those in the household. And the Israelite was to go even further. Look at this in verse 8. You shall bind them, these words that you're teaching, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. In verse 8, Moses is commanding them that the commandments or some kind of a summary of them actually be worn on the person, part of their clothing. And they had these tassels that came off uh, on their sleeves and there were reminders on these tassels of what the commandments were. And so anytime you were working with your hands, which they did all the time, there was constantly, I gotta get this out of the way. Oh, wait a minute. It's the Bible, yeah. The commands. Even what my hands, even what my hands are after in doing, God's word speaks to that. Uh, they, they wore the little frontals on front of their heads that, on, that would hang down almost between their eyes. And so wherever they looked, there was this constant reminder, right? Listen, guys, it, it, you, it's, you, you laugh, but, um, and I'm not saying even if you do something like that, that that obviously fixes whatever's going on in your heart about your forgetfulness. Um, but, you know, it, it's not stupid. It's not crazy. <laughs> and, and in fact, look at these two quotes here. The commandments were to be sovereign over individual Israelites, and they were to serve as constraints or guides on their hands and as mental checks upon their thinking. The purpose of using such symbolism was to connect God's law with everyday routine matters of life. Nothing was to be considered outside the scope of, the, of his authority. And look what Spurgeon said. These words, thou shalt see by them, thou shalt see with them, thou shalt see through them. Uh, the idea was that everywhere you went in life, you, you, th these words were impacting what your hands were doing and what you saw, how you saw your world. Verse 9, there was even one more step beyond that. Write these on the doorposts of your house so that when you are heading out of your house into whatever you're going to go do outside and you walk and you see on the doorposts of your house, you're like, oh yeah, before I go out, it'd be good for me to be reminded of these words. And whether it's the gate of your own property or it's the gate on the city as you were leaving the gate of your property or you were leaving the gates of your city to go out and do something else, oh yeah, as I step outside, I still have to remember that I'm, a, I'm an Israelite who's under these words. How I live out in this world matters. So then you're out in the world, you're outside your property, you're doing all your work as, a, as an Israelite and you come back and you come to the gate and there it is. I'm, I'm about to step into my home oh, or back into my people. Oh yeah. These words need to guide me. Come back into your household. You look at the doorposts of your house. Before you say hello to your wife, before you greet your kids, God's word needs to impact my heart and I step into this family. God knew what he was doing with his people who were idolatry inclined. Um, so, what you do with your heart, with the word of God, and the impact of it on your household, those, those things are inseparable. They've been that way from the beginning. Um, just a reminder to review, maybe back through your notes um, from December 9th on that biblical survey of the home and household relationships. Because Deuteronomy 9, as rich as it is, it does not say everything that a New Testament believer needs to know about family, household relationships, the Bible, and all of that. There's more that needs to be said. We drilled down kind of in one context. So it'd probably be good just to even review back through a lot of those statements, not even everything that you may have written down, but just look at the broad points from that to hold that alongside this. Um, 
But Deuteronomy 6 shows you how in the mind of God, these dip, the disciplines of shepherding your heart and your home are inseparable in his mind. And guys, just I just want to encourage you to, to labor to discipline yourself so as to keep these two dis, disciplines from pulling apart. Um, don't let yourself pull these two things apart. Why? Simply, guys, just first of all, because it's pleasing to the Lord. He doesn't want these two things to be pulled apart. How you shepherd your heart with the word of God to love him and to uh, be diligent to obey him and how you operate in your household, those are two things that cannot be pulled apart. So labor hard to keep them together just simply because it's pleasing to the Lord. But labor to keep them together because it also then brings integrity into your ministry in the church and outside the church. And I don't care if you're in student ministries or if you are heading up a ministry at this church. If, if, if a guy is in student ministries or in salt or whatever, and he comes to the whatever's going on and his life is, he, he's not letting these two things be pulled apart and you start talking to one of your buddies, there's integrity and there's helpfulness because your life is, is whole in this. Um, and it's helpful for your ministry in the church and outside. And then um, lastly, and um, the, this is important. If God would ever want to move you toward deacon or elder qualification, um, these foundational disciplines help secure most of those qualifications. Do you know that? And so we do this and we, we talk about this with men because it's just, it, it's, it's what's for every believer. And it's right. And not every believing man is going to be an elder or a deacon one day. But the elders of this church are also aiming that um, there needs to be more deacons and elders for the church. And if God is ever going to move you in that direction, these disciplines are foundational and they help secure most of those qualifications because most of the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1 um, either tell you what kind of a man that, God, that, uh, he, that guy is before God. Is he faithful to the Lord? Or it talks about his household relationships. And it also talks about what he's like with people in ministry. Um, but labor to not pull these things apart because your own you know, well-being before the Lord is dependent on them. And uh, it's a great way to maintain your relationship with the Lord. Uh, do it for that. But do it because maybe God wants to do something in your life to move you towards leadership in a church someday. Um, the church needs that. Uh, we should not think, and the elders at this church don't think about, well, you know what, God, God will just, I mean, God loves the church more than we do, so he'll take care of elders. I mean, he'll bring up elders somewhere, somehow. I mean, this is where it's at, right here, um, to encourage you to be a disciplined man with that. Okay, I'll finish with that. Any questions or comments or clarification that you want as we finish? Yeah, Kyle. about practical strategies for, like, yeah, I mean, one of the things, that, as silly as it may sound, is um, set your set your alarm to go off <laughs> at different times during the day. Tell your wife to call you and ask you how your heart's doing, or to text you. But I, I think anything you can do to stop yourself, something has to, if, if you're the type where you just get going and you're just kind of in the, the groove and you're just going, you're a machine, you need somebody to throw a wrench in it once in a while. Just to get you to stop and think, okay, recalibrate. Um, I think that's something really helpful to do. And I think in time, as you do something as simple as that, you can help begin to stop yourself a little more. I would say at any point you feel the one of the ways that God will get your attention throughout the day the most is by conflict. So the email comes and you're like, what is that guy thinking? <laughs> ding, 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 ding. <laughs> Shepherd your heart with the word of God. Right there. Um, or you get in a conversation that's a little tough or you're in a discipline situation at home. You get home from work and there it is. There's the reminder. Now, how am I going to think right now from um, God's word on this? How am I going to... Conflict will be used a lot um, as a reminder, as a bell going off. Um, what other thoughts do you have? What other ways would you suggest? Scott, what do you think? 
a lot of times we're in our cars, we're alone. Mm. Uh, most of the time we're driving around, we're driving around by ourselves. And so think of your time in your car as your opportunity to prepare yourself for whatever's coming next, whether it's your drive home or it's your drive to work or your drive somewhere else. Your drive to get here in the morning, uh, you probably came alone. Most of us did anyway. Um, you can either do it electronically or you can see three by five cards or whatever that have verses written on them. And it's very helpful to write them out by hand so that you've written them, you're, you're writing them, you're remembering them as you write them. But use your time in the, in the car. We're all in our cars alone every day. And uh, I found that to be very helpful. Yeah. Uh, it's not a time to entertain myself with music. More than that, it's a time for me to restore what I've lost in the last few hours mm. or whatever I did today. That's great. Uh, your um, audio Bible is great. I was uh, studying from home the other morning, and I, I walked by um, the room where Kim was in, and I, I heard a man's voice. I was like, what? I, I drew closer, and it was a man talking about uh, how to test for leprosy. And I was like, what? I'm like, that's Leviticus. And she's just, you know, working in a room, and she's just listening to the Bible. And I'm like, oh, that's a pretty good idea. <laughs> you can do your work and listen to the Bible at the same time. Now, is it the same as studying? Of course not. But that doesn't mean it's not profitable. Right? So find all kinds of different ways to just influence your day and your heart and your mind with, with um, the Bible. Why don't we close in prayer and then um, we can stick around a little bit if you want and we can ask uh, and answer more questions. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for these guys and I pray, Lord, that you would be um, gracious to them, that you would be powerful in their lives. Um, that you would help them by your grace and with your indwelling spirit and with the help of your word, Lord, help them to um, grow in self-control. Lord, I pray that you would help me to grow in self-control. Lord, this is something that we never graduate from. This is something that we always need your help with. We always need each other in this too, to spur each other on to love and good deeds in this matter. And I pray, Lord, that we would just be a, um, a good team of men together, a good family of men that would want to see each other continue to grow in these things in this church, Lord. You are, you are good and you are kind to men like us. Lord, we are amazed at how patient you are and or were with Israel back in those days. And, um, Father, that they would be so idolatry inclined and you would still try to woo them to yourself to be faithful to you. And then, Lord, we realize that there's not much difference in space between our fleshly tendencies and our own inclination towards idolatry as theirs. And so, Father, we thank you for your Son. We thank you for his great work at the cross on our behalf that secures us with you. And uh, no doubt that of any of that, Lord, where there is doubt is where I might rely on your grace to take full advantage of what you have given to me and these privileges to seek your face with your word. Lord, may we become more faithful to you today. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.